Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present black and white who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello. All right, well, welcome to the Gist of Freedom. This is a live weekly online discussion celebrating the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past, present, indigenous, Asian, Latino, black, and white, who are committed to preserving the truth of African-American history. My name is Nicole Salter, and I am one of your hosts for today's show, and a divine show it will be. For later today, we'll be talking to a definite African-American history maker uh, in our community, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Ms. Alicia Garza. But before we get to that interview... I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to another member of the Gist of Freedom family, a man of phenomenal merit and integrity, and a native New Jerseyan. He has five post-secondary degrees <laughs> and is the founder of a national nonprofit promoting youth engagement and empowerment. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you our new co-host, Dr. Amir Whitaker. Dr. Whitaker, hey, are you with us? I'm here. How's it going? How are you? Good, good. Just transitioning here. I just moved to Alabama where I'll be doing civil rights work down here. So dealing with that we're transition. Gonna, and We're going to get to all of that, but I want to back up a little bit. So five degrees. There's a master's in education from New York State, a JD from the University of Miami, a bachelor's in art history from Rutgers. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, arts and business from Union County College. I'm missing another one. And the doctorate from USC. It's interesting because when I started law school, uh, both of my brothers were incarcerated. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was learning about one side of the law while my brothers were experiencing um, the other side. And actually right now one of my brothers is still, he's he's in prison um, over basically dirty yarns and the inability to pay his fines. Uh, He's in prison. He just um, missed Christmas away from his his children. Um, So, you know, it's it's a balance. It informs what I do and, and my passion. It's part of the reason why I try to sort of front load and, and focus on education as and the investment of education in quality schools because um, the research shows, you know, the more education, the better educated a person is, the less likely they are to enter the criminal justice system, uh, even though we know that's no guarantee, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so that that's informs it there, but, I mean, just every day, um, it, it's like one foot in the door, one foot out the door, um, having that experience and, and, you know, with all of my peers and with everyone. Um, so we live in a system that's not really forgiving of people who make mistakes, and, and that's why um, we have to reform the criminal justice system to ensure that most 
people don't enter it in the first place. Um, and having that experience, you know, growing up where I can count the Christmases, my dad was home on one hand, um, and, 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 you know, speaking to my mom through a, a glass window um, definitely in, in, inform my work today. So what general advice, legal or otherwise, would you give to a parent or a caregiver or a guardian who believes that their child is a part of the school-to-prison pipeline? What, what advice, what recommendations would you make to break that cycle? Sure. Well, I'm limited in my ability to give specific legal advice. But of course. But I think, you know, if, if you're noticing and, and what the numbers show, you know, black children specifically um, are experiencing removal from school at higher rates, right? So if, if a parent is noticing that um, their child is being sent home um, or if they're being called to pick their child up without any proper explanation, um, any documentation, um, then something is definitely up. And no matter what district you're in, if you check what's called, usually referred to as like the code of conduct, um, which are the rules that govern um, behavior within the district with students. It's supposed to outline, you know, what can happen to your student and when, what can happen to your child and when. So definitely being aware of that. But um, there are definitely a lot of rights, due process rights, and, and other universals across the country. Um, for instance, a student can't be removed from school for more than 10 days um, it's suspension, you know, um, without different things taking place. A school can't just tell you, all right, take that kid home and never bring him back, which has happened. You know, we know happens. Um, but but also, you know, if they're students, a special needs student, there's a whole new set of protections for students. So it, it depends on the specific student. But I would mm -hmm. definitely encourage parents to check the local um district policies and it, it should outline everything and and you don't have to accept what a school what an administrator at a school tells you um you, you can there's usually an appeals process to go above them and, and challenge things and uh you know i guess the biggest piece of advice is to not be afraid because oftentimes parents uh just feel like all right well i'm dropping the kid off at the door educating them is your job i'll come back and pick them up and um but the the, the dynamic has to change and they you know parents um, have to be willing to, you know, uh, they have a voice, and, and their child has a right to an education, so uh, parents should use that voice. Nice. Well, <clears throat> Nelson Mandela said there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. What does our treatment of children in the United States say about the United States? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You see... Um, here, especially with the incarceration of youth, um, up until a few years ago with the Supreme Court decision, um, you know, we were the only country where a child could be sentenced to die in prison. Um, we send more children to adult jail and adult prisons um, than any other country, and that happens in Florida more than any other state where we're taking children as young as 12 and label them, labeling them as felons for the rest of their life where you know, they won't be able to vote or take advantage of educational opportunities and different employment opportunities that basically we're telling them to no longer dream at the age of 12. Um, so, you know, 
judging by Mandela's quote, um, you see there's not a lot of redemption uh, for children here, and, and that's something that, you know, a, a lot of people are fighting to change. So, you know, it's a slow journey, but um, we're, we're still fighting it, and, you know, it's it goes from the education system to the criminal justice system into all all different forms of society. And what role do you think a grassroots movement like the Black Lives Matter movement or the Civil Rights Movement really was also a grassroots movement before it became a, you know, a pusher of policy initiatives. What role do you see these movements in the work that you're doing? How can people become involved from where they are doing what they're doing? Right. Well, grassroots is extremely important, you know, looking at the history of all movements for equality. You know, it was the people on the streets with protesting, um, along with the people in courts with the legal challenges, right? And um, they have to move hand in hand, but I think grassroots movements um, are really important in, in terms of just showing that our people actually do care. You can't, um, our children this sort of way, or, um, you know, we're not going to take this sort of force from police um, and stand by and, and just deal with it. You know, we're going to go out in the streets, we're going to shut it down, we're going to do different things, use our rights as Americans um, to protest nonviolently and, and show that we're not content with this. And um, change and progress doesn't happen without that because otherwise um, there would people would assume that there is no concern. And I think that's one of the important things about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you didn't see a lot of youth mobilization um, until you saw that and people just thought our generation didn't care you know, if if someone was killed on arm or if something happened, uh, if if we're not protesting, um, people assume that, you know, it's all right, and then they can get away with it again in the future. So I think uh, grassroots movement is definitely important. Mm. Well, thank you, Dr. Amir. We are so happy to have you on the show as a co-host, as a part of this conversation and in future conversations to be had. It's really, really Really lovely to have you. <laughs> I appreciate you Thank very you. much. Likewise. It's great to be you've here. Been li- you've been listening to The Gist of Freedom, a live weekly online discussion celebrating the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, past and present, indigenous, Asian, Latino, black, and white, all the people who are committed to preserving the truth and the legacy of African-American history. And now we're going to move on to speak with uh, Alicia Garza, the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, to get her take on how the movement is furthering the causes of the past and stepping us into the future. Ms. Garza, are you there? Hello, hello. Yes, I am. I'm here. I am so happy to have you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So just for our listeners, in layman's terms, I just want to clarify the who, what, when, where, and why of Black Lives Matter. Now, I know that you started the the hashtag, essentially, with your Facebook post, Black Lives Matter. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin? Sure. So Black Lives Matter was created in 2013 after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. And uh, it started as a love letter to black people uh, in a post that I wrote on Facebook. 
and my sister Patrice put a hashtag in front of it to be able to continue the conversation. And she and I talked about how important it was to be able to build a space for black people to dream together about what the possibilities of our collective futures could be. Uh, my sister Opal, uh, who has lots of skills in tech and communications, uh, reached out a few days later and said, hey, you know, this needs to be much more than a hashtag. This needs to be a place where people can share stories and share their dreams and their visions, but also a place where people can come together and take action. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter really merged into much more than a hashtag. It became an organizing project very early on, and it now has more than 30 chapters internationally um, of black people who are doing important work in our communities to make sure that we end state-sanctioned violence once and for all. Um, is there a, a unifying agenda that you guys are all working on, a, a certain particular set of outcomes that will signify success? Sure. I mean, I think for us, really what we hope to accomplish is to eradicate anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence in all aspects of our lives. And we keep it broad like that because it's really important to us um, that we recognize that anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence impacts us in every single aspect of our lives. It's not just criminal justice. It's also about access to education that's quality. It's about access to affordable housing. It's about access to um, being able to feed and support our families. It's also about access to our own humanity, right? Being able to be our full selves in our skin unapologetically. And so what unites us is a commitment to making sure that we eradicate anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence in all of its forms. And then what that looks like locally for many uh, of our chapters uh, looks different in different places. Uh, so for example, in Chicago, folks are very focused on making sure that they end police, extrajudicial police killings of black people, and in particular, black young people. And of course, in the last few months, we've seen lots of activity happening there. Uh, with our BLM chapter and also uh, the Black Youth Project 100, right, around um, Laquan McDonald. Uh, certainly there's folks in Tennessee who are working to win a uh, domestic worker bill of rights because they understand how anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence manifests in our economy. So all over the country, and, and including internationally, what we're seeing is that being united by a vision of what we want to see uh, broadly helps us come together in our local areas and do the work that we need to do in order to achieve the outcomes that we want. Do you all process any kind of collective visioning? One of the interesting things, um, I'm a reader of, of, um, of science fiction, and there is a science fiction writer whose name is escaping me now. She wrote um, Wild Seed, as I look up her name, I'll continue. Um, but one of the things Octavia that she did is that she wanted to, Octavia Butler, there we are. She said that she wanted to create a space for black people to begin to envision their lives um, in the future outside of the paradigms of oppression, something that has, we don't give much of our mental occupation to. What kind of visioning um, does the Black Lives Matter movement participate in outside of the actual actions that they take to thwart those oppressive forces? 
Mm-hmm. So as a network, what we do is we use art and culture and media to be able to um, communicate what our dreams and visions are. Uh, just this last year, uh, one of the folks who works with us, Tanya Bernard, spearheaded a project inside of our network called When Black Lives Matter, I Imagine. And it took Mm. clips from people all over the world talking about the world that they envision when black lives actually do matter. And you can find that online. Um, We also... Can you give us that that tag again? Uh, Sure. It's just called the I Imagine Project. And if you just put that in your Google search, you'll be able to find it. Uh, The other thing that Tanya led, which was really beautiful, uh, was uh, our participation in a 24 Hours in the Life of project, where people would take photos of their lives every hour on the hour for 24 hours. And that was a really incredible way for people to be able to project their everyday conditions, but also through their own eyes, right? Um, Mm. And then, of course, we do spend time together talking about Um, what it is that we want to see if we were able to achieve our goals. And quite frankly, sometimes it's hard for us to look that far out, right? And so also some of what we do is collective visioning around, you know, how can we make that world come faster, right? Um, Recognizing that it may be decades and decades until we get to a world where Black Lives Matter. Um, How can we make the world that we live in right now start to reflect our vision for what we want to see. Speaking of those decades, how do you see the Black Lives Matter movement as a part of the continuum, say, of the civil rights movement or of the abolitionist movement or of any human rights movement that we've had in the history of humanity? Mm -hmm. So Black Lives Matter is certainly one tributary in a long river of resistance and struggle. And we really locate that the, the kind of origin of that river uh, went to the time when our people were stolen um, from various places in Africa and brought to this country before it was a country uh, in boats and in chains, right? Um, and so we recognize not only that um, we are part of that tributary, but we also carry the responsibility of bringing forward Uh, the wishes and the dreams and the visions of our ancestors while also rooting it in our current context and recognizing um, that as times change, as conditions change, um, that our visions must change as well to ensure that we reflect, right, what's possible today. Um, And that's why we're so committed um, to making sure that our liberation struggle doesn't leave anybody behind. And so when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we really mean all black lives. So it's not just black cisgendered men. Um, It's very much a movement that centers the experiences and the visions of black women, black queer women, black trans women, black disabled people, black immigrants, um, black incarcerated people, right? Understanding that until, that none of us are free until all of us are free. And so our movement very much has to reflect that desire so that all of us can get there together. What do you say to the <clears throat> to the people who feel as though the identity politics of intersectionality um, undermine the greater cause of freedom for people of African descent in the United States but in the world? Well, I think the reality is that we don't live in a world yet where black lives do matter. 
And so, you know, we, we don't see our movement as being about identity politics. We see it as a political movement that is trying to move a radical vision throughout this society. Um, and black people have really played that role historically. Um, and I can't remember where I saw this, but at some point somebody said that black people have continuously restored the to this country, right? And so mm. for us, blackness is not just about phenotype. It is very much about conditions. It's about an experience. Um, and it's about our relationship. Um, and it is also about a culture that we have um, created under some of the most dire conditions. And that culture really celebrates our ability to be resilient. And that is blackness today. Um, and so it is important for us to put that at the forefront, not just because we only care about black people, but because black people have a unique experience that deserves attention um, and also deserves the same level of um, care and uh, support, right, um, as anyone else. Um, for us, we understand also that the, the movement for black liberation is intricately tied to the liberation of all people. Um, but in order for us to get there, black people have to know, right, that we are worthy of living. And black people also have to know that we are worthy of fighting for um, and so that's really the, the um, place that we see ourselves taking, right? Um, and again, it's, it's not about phenotype or some people mattering more than others, but it is to say that if black lives don't matter, right, we're never going to get to a world where all lives matter. Absolutely. You're listening to the Gist of Freedom, a live weekly online discussion celebrating the African-American experience. And we're talking to one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Ms. Alicia Garza. Am I saying your name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay, great. I just want to make sure. <laughs> what would you say? Um, <laughs> no, I hate it when people mispronounce my name when they can just ask me. Because um, <laughs> I'm here. In your conversation with Descent Magazine in January of last year, you characterized the Black Lives Matter movement as growing and learning lessons from our elders. And you specifically cited Sada Shakur and Diane Nash and Bernard Rustin. Um, what would you say, where would you say the movement is at now, a year later? on its journey toward a, a, a presumed maturation, if that's what we're going for. What's your largest success? Yeah. That's a great question. So um, I think that the kind of largest success that the movement can claim now, I mean, there's several, um, but one important one is um, that there are thousands of black people in motion um, fighting for um, our right to dignity and respect. And um, I think that we haven't seen um, an upsurge of this type in quite a while, right? Um, so that is a huge victory that we've been able to really sustain that um, over the last almost three years now. Uh, the other thing that I would say is, is a huge success for this movement is that these questions around the sanctity of black life um, are on the tongues of people in power, right? So we have uh, presidential candidates who are speaking to um, the importance of making sure that black people are not being killed extrajudicially. 
Um, that's a huge leap from where we've been. In fact, our own president, right, has only kind of acknowledged the question of race about three times in his eight years as president. Um, and it's really been this movement that has forced that conversation. Um, and then I think the other success um, certainly is that, you know, this movement is really reverberating through other social movements that are growing in this country, including the environmental justice movement and the labor movement, right, that everybody is talking about, well, what do we do to make sure that Black Lives Matter? And that is very much a success. I think where we're headed now um, or where I think we need to be headed as a movement is really grappling with this question of what is it going to take for us to build the types of alternatives that we need so that black lives can actually matter? What are those alternatives and how do we bring them into being? Uh, it's my hope that 2016 is, you know, dubbed the year of experimentation and the year of alternatives, right? 2015 was dubbed the year of resistance. Um, so this is really our time to not just say no, right, but also to be really clear about what we're saying yes to. Um, and I think that will bring more and more people into this movement. Speaking of bringing more people into the movement, how can people become involved? Um, when you look at, like, the civil rights movement, there's always a perception, and particularly the way that they teach it in our public schools, that, um, that A, everyone was involved, B, everyone loved Martin Luther King, <laughs> C, everyone um, was willing to kind of put their themselves in harm's way to achieve the goals uh, and the vision of the movement. What are the ways in which people can, can participate at varying levels right now? Um, and also adding to that question, for those people who are feeling a little, um, what do I call them, like... Um, uh, sideline activists, people who just click like and sign petitions uh, online, how they can become more involved should they want to? Well, I think the, the big thing for people to, to know, right, is that um, taking action of any kind, whether it's personal action or whether it's, you know, as a part of an organization or as a part of a grouping of people, um, they are all equally weighted. Um, but what we have been saying, to be quite honest, is um, what you sh cannot be doing at this moment is sitting on the sidelines waiting to figure out how to get involved, right? Mm. Um, I know people in my generation, you know, will say, I, went, you know, I wonder what I would have been doing during the civil rights movement. Um, and I've been hearing people say, well, you know, there's a movement in process right now. So whatever you're doing right now is what you would have been doing then, right? <laughs> so, um, so we want that to be uh, an impetus for folks to say, hey, you know, if I submit a letter to the editor of my newspaper, if I'm talking to my family about what it means for black lives to matter in this country, if I am, you know, contributing to young people who are demonstrating in the streets, if I am demonstrating in the streets myself, if I'm having conversations with my colleagues about how we can make Black Lives Matter in our sector, um, then you are making a contribution to the growth and the evolution of this movement. Um, but again, what we cannot do in this moment is sit on the sidelines. This window that has been opened will not be open forever. And it's what we do today that determines the outcomes of tomorrow. So we would really encourage 
people who are trying to figure out what to do to just do something. <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. kind of right or wrong, right? Um, you know, I've been hearing people talk about the conversations that they had with their families over the holidays. And that is really a contribution to the movement, right? Um, mm. The conversations that you have with your children about race and racism in this country, that is a contribution to this movement. Um, we are fighting a huge uh, Goliath, right? And all we have, right, are our contributions. So, yes, now is not the time to sit on the sidelines. Now is the time to jump in from wherever you are um, with whatever you can do. The sum total of all of those actions will help us get further than we've been before. That's a very optimistic outlook. But there is a huge amount, um, not to play devil's advocate, but I will, of, of pessimism around this movement that stems from, I would say, the civil rights movement or even further beyond that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking within the context of our contemporary lives. But this criticism that, mm-hmm. say, for instance, the civil rights movement did not work, that integration was not a, uh, a good goal, that it actually destroyed the African-American the economy of our communities, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you say to people who really feel disempowered and wanting to distance themselves from this movement that they think is going to amount to nothing, just another generation where it manifests itself, and where racism and racist policies manifest themselves in new and interesting ways with different technology, but the same old, same old? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is that, you know, this idea that the civil rights movement accomplished nothing is really a misread of history. And so the first thing I would encourage is actually more study about um, the movement itself. Um, The other piece that I would just offer here is that actually the civil rights movement accomplished a lot. Um, And then what happened, right, was that the state, Uh, developed a response to how successful the civil rights movement was. And it systematically dismantled many of the gains that were won. That is not a result of the movement not accomplishing anything. It's a result of a struggle for power, right? And so if we understand it in that way, then we understand that our task in this period is actually to study what's happened before us not for the purposes of being pessimistic and saying, well, nothing can work, uh, but for the purposes of saying, how do we take the best of what we know from, from movements before us and movements that are happening around us? And then how do we leave the rest, right? There were lots of things that were happening during civil rights, during black power, um, that were not good for black people, right? And there were lots of things that transformed people's lives. And so what we want to do is carry forward the things that were transformative, and we want to leave behind um, the things that are keeping us behind. Um, With that being said, um, one of the major tools that we have for success, right, is our ability to believe deeply that we can win. But we also have to be very clear that winning in and of itself isn't an endpoint or a destination. It in and of itself is a process. And so um, I think from our perspective, we are not unaware of the challenges that we are facing, including the increasing state repression that will continue to increase the more successful that we are. 
Um, but we're also under no illusions that in a struggle for power, right, um, that ultimately what we are what we are contending for, right, um, is our futures. And so we owe it to ourselves, um, at least to throw down as hard as we can and say, you know, I want to look back on this moment and say, I did everything that I could. I did everything that I could. I contributed everything that I could. Um, I don't want to look back on this moment and say, well, I was the one who was the naysayer, right? Um, and I think from my parents' generation and from, you know, the generation of black power, there are people who can express the regrets that they have about how they showed up in such transformative moments. So I would just encourage those pessimists um, both to study history, right, um, and not the history that you learned in school, but really study the testimonials of people who were involved um, and, and actively involved at those times, because I think the picture is much more nuanced. Um, and two, you know, if there are ideas about how we carry yeah. forward the best of what we've got, I agree. Then jump in and put it to work. Spaghetti is You're ready. <laughs> Dr. Amir Whitaker of the Southern Poverty Law Center has been dying to chime in. He's done some amazing work around <laughs> this movement with, uh, with respect to education and the disenfranchisement of youth. Dr. Whitaker, what do you have to ask? Sure. Well, thanks, Alicia, for joining us. You mentioned several times state-sanctioned violence, and I think when most people hear that, they view, you know, a police officer with a baton or a gun or, or some state actor physically um, enacting violence on a citizen. But you mentioned it penetrating other areas. So could you describe what state-sanctioned violence looks like in other areas? Sure. I mean, so we wrote a piece um, that was published in the Feminist Wire called The History of the Black Lives Matter Movement. And in that piece, we described how, in our view, um, the rampant underemployment and impoverishment of black people is state-sanctioned violence. How um, the kind of ongoing assault against black women and girls is state-sanctioned violence. Um, and the way that we talk about state-sanctioned violence, right, are practices and policies that are sanctioned by the state, created by the state, to reinforce a power imbalance where black people are on the losing end, <laughs> right? Um, and mm -hmm. That is the simplest way that I can describe it. Um, the over-incarceration of black people uh, in prisons and jails is state-sanctioned violence. Um, the over-execution of black people who are incarcerated is state-sanctioned violence. These are all policies and practices um, that our legislators uh, support, um, that at times we vote for, right, but oftentimes um, are things that we give our consent to um, that really have negative and adverse impacts on the lives of black people and other communities as well, right? We know that, you know, indigenous communities are also very much um, survivors of state-sanctioned violence, but if it was up to the state, right, they would not be survivors. Uh, so hmm. certainly, I think from our perspective, right, um, we want to break this notion um, that state-sanctioned violence is only about the criminal justice system. It is very much about the conditions that are created 
by our government, by decision makers, to uh, reinforce an imbalance of power, right, that gives power and privilege to wealthy white men, right, at the expense of pretty much everybody else, right? And so for us, the mm-hmm. key task of our generation, of our period, is to make sure that we end that process, that we end state-sanctioned violence once and for all, and that in particular we pay attention to the ways that state-sanctioned violence is disproportionately directed at black lives. Right. And you talked earlier about the intersectionality within the black community itself. Uh, Could you discuss what state-sanctioned violence might look like um, within different identities within the community, so maybe the LGBT community or other communities, because uh, the thing about Black Lives Matter is sometimes people seem to generalize the struggle of all black people, um, but they're different stories. And could you talk more about that? Yeah. So I think the thing that connects us, though, is that um, is that disproportionately it's black folks that are experiencing Um, these experiences in our economy, in our democracy, and in our society. Uh, For when we talk about state-sanctioned violence and how it impacts various communities within Black communities, we could talk about the fact that, you know, the average life expectancy of a Black trans woman is 35 years old, right? And that is not just as, as, it's not just the result of, you know, a vigilante um, murdering a trans woman, um, which does happen way too frequently. Um, and in fact, you know, in 2015 alone, we had more than uh, 30 reported uh, murders of trans women, and most of those women were women of color, and a significant majority of them were black. Um, we could also talk about the ways in which the reason that black trans women have a life expectancy of 35 years old is because they are completely shut out from access to employment opportunities in the formal economy, um, absolutely shut out from opportunities, uh, accessing opportunities in our education system because of bias uh, inside of our schools uh, and bullying, right, inside of our schools, uh, access to housing, right, because for all of the same reasons, right? And so that is why black trans women are dying way before they should be, right? Um, we could also talk about you know, the ways that state-sanctioned violence impacts black immigrants, right, of which we have more than half a million undocumented black immigrants in this country who are both criminalized because they're black and criminalized because they're not citizens of this country. Uh, we could talk, I mean, we could go on and on, right? Right, um, I think and the, the, the common denominator. That in, is that we're all black, right? And right. so I think for a time there was a, uh, notion, right, that if we could get economically free as black people, then then racial segregation and res- racial exclusion would somehow dissipate. And I think what we're seeing today is that that's not true, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, you could be rich and black like Oprah Winfrey, right, and still be subject to racism. Um, or you can be poor and black and, of course, um, lose your life as a result of racism. And so it's, it's really not just about economic mobility. It's certainly about us breaking open this question of racial segregation um, and how state-sanctioned violence, right, is used to reproduce those uneven power relationships. So I wanted to just chime in here because I, I'm, 
I'm a regular person, and I think in regular ways. Uh, I guess that's my way of saying it now. But if the police enact policies that serve the state, and in America the state is supposed to represent the will of the people, like why is the state-sanctioned violence seem like it's something that has nothing to do with the people? Are we really talking about our sanctioned violence against black people, our society's? violence, sanctioned violence against black people? I love this question because I think the reaction that I usually get when I hear that is why are we so afraid (laughs) to talk about what it will take for black people to be free? I would say um, that this kind of identification of um, intracommunal violence, right, violence that happens in our own communities, Um, particularly when we start to talk about violence that we experience at the hands of the state, um, is is designed. Um, And what I mean by that is um, this notion that that there's somehow more um, dysfunctionality in black communities than there is in white communities is is actually a constructed notion, right? And that came during the time, um, well, really during the period between civil rights and black power. Right? And it was a way to shape perceptions, not just about what was possible, but also to shape perceptions in the black community itself about whether or not to support a movement for freedom and transformation. Um, so what we know about crime that happens in black communities is that it's at par or lower than crime that happens in white communities, but we often don't talk about that. right? Um, and we also know that the reality is that the that crime in our communities is really a result of the disenfranchisement and the neglect that has been happening to our communities for generations. So what do you do in a community where you have been segregated, isolated from access to wealth, resources, and basic human needs, but turn on each other? Do you think that if we were able to infuse our communities with the resources that we need to be and feel human, that we would see a drop in those kinds of um, uh, acts of aggression that happen between our absolutely. own people. And I think... Absolutely. Yes, but I think my, my question was yeah. slightly different. I agree completely with everything that you said, but what I wanted to hear your thoughts on, well, whether, whether or not um, our, our sense that state-sanctioned violence is like, like the government is different from the people. Like in, the, in America, it's the government is the people, or at least it's supposed to be. So when we talk about state state sanctioned violence, we're really talking about violence that has been sanctioned by the people. Now, who are the people who sanction this violence if the people are, in fact, the state, if the people are the government themselves? And I wanted to just talk about how, how though in the past as we have attacked this problem, we have created policies that have created laws that have, uh, criminalized some kind of behavior, but when you haven't quite managed to really change the hearts of people so that the same problem doesn't continue to manifest itself in different ways over time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have to be really clear, I, and I do actually make a distinction between um, uh, the state and the people. And I, I understand mm. the way that you're describing it because certainly systems can only move with people moving them, right? Uh, they don't mm-hmm. move on their own. Um, but certainly 
I do think it's important to make a distinction between um, people who have the power to move those types of practices and policies and people who don't, right, who are on the receiving end, but are certainly told, right, that they have some sort of say in whether or not it happens. Um, and I think that if that were true, right, then, you know, the election of President Obama would have meant the eradication of racism, mm-hmm. right? There are many things that are functioning outside of our control, but they're happening in our name, right? So that's one aspect of it. Um, the other thing, though, and if, you know, if we were Hillary Clinton, we would say that you can't actually change hearts. You can only change policy. But we're not Hillary mm. Clinton. <laughs> and yeah. we no, we are not. <laughs> no, we are not. We understand that there must be a dialectical relationship, right, um, and an and unextricable relationship between changing culture, changing hearts, and changing policy, yeah, um, and that if there is not the consensus around um, wanting the eradication of state-sanctioned violence, then we will not see any policies or practices that eradicate state-sanctioned violence, right? So I think that's absolutely correct. And that's why we place such emphasis, right, on this piece around culture change, not at the expense of policy change, but understanding that, you know, good policies, right, can only happen within a culture that supports their implementation to their fullest, right? And then also the site of culture for us is also about um, looking beyond policy to really just talk about a transformative vision for what we want our world to look like, right? Um, so I agree with that 100%, and I would just say, um, you know, we get, we get um, one concern that I've heard about um, our movement, right, is that we're not willing to get in there and get our hands dirty with policy and legislation. Um, and I think that's not true, right? And I could name, you know, uh, organizations and, and certainly our chapters who are doing work in their local communities to change policy every day. Uh, but the reality is what we know is that policy can only do so much. We can't, out, we can't legislate ourselves out of racism. We can't legislate ourselves out of state-sanctioned violence. We actually have to have a change in our culture, in, a, in our um, understanding of what's acceptable and what's not. Well, I want to thank you so much, Ms. Alicia Garza, the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, for joining us today on The Gist of Freedom, our weekly online discussion celebrating the African-American experience. Um, I wanted to leave you, as I've already stolen four minutes and 16 seconds in addition to the time, <laughs> want to leave you with one more question, which I think is a poignant question because I want to know. That's why it's poignant. If, if you weren't mm-hmm. called to the Black Lives Matter movement or to the human rights movement at large, what would you be doing with your life? I don't know a life without this movement. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is I, I really do. I spend um, every waking hour thinking about um, the possibilities of our freedom. And uh, whether I was, you know, here doing Black Lives Matter work or in my, you know, in my actual job where I work uh, to uh, win rights and respect for domestic workers uh, around the world, um, there's certainly just that fire for justice and equality and um, dignity um, that is really lit inside of me. So I, I can't imagine 
uh, a lifetime without being a part of this movie. I want to personally thank you. I was so enthralled and happy to hear that you took this interview, and I'm so glad to have gotten into the inside of what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about. I'm even more encouraged to claim it as my own um, as I participate in the ways that I do in my life to, to further us along this agenda path. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on today. All right. Well, we'll to you. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Bye-bye now. This is the Gist of Freedom, our live weekly online discussion celebrating the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, indigenous, Asian, Latino, black, and white, who are committed to preserving the truth of African-American history. Dr. Amir, we definitely talked to someone who is a history maker today, both in you and in Ms. Garza. Do you agree? Thank you. Definitely, definitely. And I am excited and encouraged about our next conversation. Stay um, with your ear to the ground to hear more about when we'll be coming back to you next and with whom we'll be speaking to. Bye-bye now. Bye, everyone.